Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Steve Cochran. Steve is a CFO of a multi-billion dollar construction company who's a thought leader on the topics of strategic growth, corporate financial management, and he's also the founder of Cultivar. He's a CPA and he earned his MBA at Duke University. Steve is married to his wife, Lilena, and he has two children. When he's not working, he enjoys running and has completed five marathons. He's based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Steve is here today to talk about the ideas in his book, Outsizing. Strategies to Grow Your Business, Profits, and Potential. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, it's great to have you here. Tell me, when you were growing up, Steve, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Well, there, there's a guy that went to church with me. And when I was a teenager, I, I had, was going through a very rough period. Both at home, there's a lot of transition going on. And at that time, I had there's no father figure in the home. So I remember there's this guy, his name was Chad, and he took me under his arm and he knew that I had an interest in golf. So one day he took me to the driving range and he taught me how to hit a ball. And I mean, I was horrible. I was, I was hitting the ground. I was probably scuffing up his clubs. He sat there and he taught me, he mentored me. And on the way home, I remember I had a bunch of change in my pocket. We didn't have a lot of money, but I wanted to pay for the experience. I remember I trying to give him a fistful of coins and he, he said, no, 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 this one's on me. I'll always remember that experience because it wasn't necessarily what he taught me that day, but he, it's the impression he left on my life and how he made me feel that I'll never forget. And, and that stuck with me, just that experience. And then other experiences that he continued to mentor me on taught me the importance of, of really mentoring people and making people feel important, feel loved, and feel inspired. So Steve, one of the lessons you learned from Chad, he made you feel important. He made you feel that you had a connection. What were some of the conclusions you drew from that experience about the world or your ability to do things in it? Yeah, I mean, it taught me the, the power of influence and it really taught me the power of small and simple things. I mean, oftentimes we as individuals and entrepreneurs and leaders, we, we want to get out there and we want to make a huge impact on the world. And we think about big global problems. But what I learned from this lesson and it's carried throughout my life is that we can make an impact in small ways that leads to massive change. So right in front of our faces each and every day, we encounter people that are struggling with different issues. We can do small things on a daily basis that will lead to very big outcomes. And that was a big lesson that I learned from this experience in mentorship. And it's a really neat transition into the thinking that you describe in Outsizing. What led you to write that book based upon your experience as a speaker, as a consultant, as a CFO? You've seen the insides of how companies operate. What led you to say, this is the book, and how did you come up with the name? Because it's a great title. Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, I think uh, you know the first book that I wrote was called Delivering Value, and that had moderate success. It got out some of my ideas on business strategy. But then as I continued to develop my thoughts and these experiences continued to roll in my life, what I realized is that there was a, a big disconnect on all the strategic principles that are required to make a business successful. 
and uh, there would be books out there on on just strategy. There would be books on finance, which were often boring, boring and very thick and very deep. There are books on client experience, books on marketing and sales and so on and so forth. But what I realized is that there was no comprehensive book that I could find that tied in all these principles because strategy can't be looked at in isolation. You can't just uh, create mission, vision, values and, and throw them up on the wall and expect employees to be able to execute on those types of statements. Same thing with the financial side. You can't just run your business from an accounting and finance perspective uh, and be profit-driven without having principles that tie into the overall strategy or the client experience. So that's why I wrote the book. But even deeper than that, I mean, beyond the, the market need, really it stems from this idea that business and strategy really impacts individuals' lives. And I remember going into companies and helping them turn around their business operations. And I'd be sitting looking at a spreadsheet with the CEO, and he would be going down the, the line of employees and trying to eliminate costs and just treating people as a, another number on the page and saying, okay, eliminate this person, eliminate this person, eliminate this person going down the line. And one of those experiences, I, I stepped back and thought, wow, this is no way to run a business, no way to treat people. And it's a shame that people are being let go because a lack of a strategy of a good strategy. So that that's really the drive behind this is how do we improve lives and how do we improve business through better strategies? So you talk a lot about strategy development in the book. What are some of the mistakes or errors that you think are common for people who are focused on strategy, recognize the importance of it, yet are fumbling some of the important drivers because they're missing some key elements? Yeah, excellent question. I think the strategy design piece, I mean, there's so many different iterations out there on the market of what strategy design looks like. I mean, you can use SWOT analysis or you can use these other types of strategy tools. And, uh, and it's fun to sit in a room with your executive team and think about all these ideas and opportunities that lie before you. That's what I call strategy design. So you think about, okay, here are the opportunities, here are objectives, initiatives that we want to pursue. And, and it's easy to think up those things, but really where companies fail is on the execution side. So a lot of companies uh, really struggle to implement their plans. And depending on uh, the group that I speak to, it can range from 10% of CEOs being satisfied and highly satisfied with their strategy execution to uh, you know maybe 40 or 50%. But very, it's very unusual for me to pull an audience and find that a large percentage of the, the group is really satisfied with how the strategy is being executed. And I think that's because there's a disconnect between, okay, let's sit in a room and think about the opportunities and the advantages that we could create to, to go out there and, and win in the market to, okay, what are the actual tools that we need to ensure that we're earning a, above return on our capital and that we're, we're actually executing in a way that our customers like and in, in a way that we could delight our customers? And how can we um, build our talent and build strong teams in order for us to scale? So those are those are uh, things that all need to come together and be cohesive in this strategic plan. Let's dig into that a little bit deeper, Steve, because it's such an interesting and important topic. So for instance, do you think that strategy ought to be constructed or based on your experience, do you think that strategy ought to be constructed as that conversation, as that you know, working around the boardroom table, and then as a separate phase, talk about the execution of the strategy, or do you prefer to see it done to develop it, hash it out a little bit, and then think about how that would execute. 
what do you find works better? And what are some of the ways that people would be thinking about that? Yeah, that's great. I think with companies, what allows them to be successful is when they can be very iterative and they can be very agile in their strategic approach. What I mean by that, Bill, is when a company is crafting a strategy, right? They can't lock themselves in isolation one time a year and come up with strategic plans. They have to be constantly coming up with new strategies to face the market changes that are before them. And it's not a matter of creating a new strategy every single month and and having the new flavor of the month. Uh, That's not what I'm saying at all. But you can create a, a strategy and you could have a few solid initiatives that you're pursuing. And then the team needs to be meeting on a regular basis, whether that's weekly or monthly, to evaluate the actions that they're pursuing and the results that they're getting and make adjustments. I think where companies can fall into a trap is thinking that strategic planning is an annual event. So there's a lot of companies out there that get together and they go on some type of retreat and they create this strategic plan one time of year. And after they come back, they, they put it in a desk drawer and it gets forgotten. And strategy can't be like that. It has to be deeply ingrained in the operations of the business and, and looked at and evaluated and, and measured regularly. Yeah. One of the last chapters of your book actually says that you need to make strategy a habit and forge patterns, was it? In the chapter, Forge Patterns, you talk about how strategy needs to be not just, like you say, an event, but a habit that's regularly looked at in order to make sure that it's aligned and that the numbers are being met or exceeded, and then making those adjustments. Can you share with us, share with me an example of how this takes place in a live example, you know, a company you've worked with that really made the adjustment from saying, oh, we don't just do this once a year. This is something we have to look at on a regular basis. And what type of impact that had? Yeah, absolutely. So I was working with this CEO, his name's Nick, and he was leading about a 500 person company. They're a a service firm out in the Western United States. And uh, when I was working with Nick here on the the strategy, when I first came in, they were doing that annual strategic planning session. So they would come up with a list of initiatives that they would pursue and they would assign it out to different individuals. And uh, the problem with that is that there was no follow through or people were pursuing initiatives and going off like wild cats, right? So everybody had their own agenda and they're all pursuing a bunch of random crazy things that weren't very cohesive. So when I came into the company, what we first did is we educated the team on strategic principles. So I put together, I have different courses that we teach to our clients because we believe that they have to understand these core principles of strategy in order to be effective moving forward. So uh, the the CEO realized that he invested in these programs and he he put a lot of his team members, both um, frontline workers all the way up to managers and uh, senior execs into these programs, such as like client experience strategy. They learned about strategy design. They learned about strategy execution. Uh, They went through two financial courses called Boosting Your Financial IQ and Leading Your Financial Future just to get a taste of uh, the financial side of the business. And they got a a solid foundation of understanding of strategy. And once they did that, they put together these strategic teams. And I call them the S teams, standing for strategic teams. And they would, the S teams would meet on a regular basis every other week. They would meet and they would look at these initiatives and these actions and results that they were pursuing. I call them IARs. And these are the patterns you're referring to, Bill. But they would meet on a regular basis and and they would have these solid initiatives that don't change that they were pursuing. For example, one of the initiatives 
was uh, becoming more of a technology-driven enterprise. So that, that's a very big, broad initiative. They'd have a lot of actions that they were pursuing, digitizing certain processes within the business and implementing new pieces of software and technology to streamline the company. And then they were measuring the results of that initiative. And these S teams at first, you know, it's always a little clunky at first because you're getting in the habit, you're getting in the routine, just like anything in life. But once they started establishing the, the routine and the habits and that pattern, it was fun to see them follow the results. I mean, they, they were looking at the results, they're measuring their, their work, and they started seeing improvement in the business. And they got so excited. They, got, they were my uh, disciples. They, they were going around telling other people, telling other companies, and they were getting other employees engaged in the overall strategy and it's just is really exciting to to see that happen and i still get updates from them um, even though i'm not actively working with the business i'll get updates from them on a regular basis when they're in the media or they'll they'll send me an update on their their kpis and it, it's exciting to see them grow and and really uh, progress steve you mentioned about a turning point where they suddenly started getting excited do you remember the event or the metric that suddenly registered for them that allowed them to see that this discipline wasn't just a pain in the neck, it actually was producing results because of the insights or because of the achievements that ensued. Yeah, absolutely. We had two different graphs, and one of the graphs was a a trailing 12-month graph. So it would show the last 12 months in a bar. So each of the bars on the graph represented 12 months. And at first, the team, they they weren't used to seeing their data in this way. Usually, they were used to it see the data in a month over month format. So the month over month format is very confusing or it's very up and down. So if you're looking at January, you say, wow, January is, is down, February's up, March is up, April's down, May's down. Uh, so when you look at a month over month trend, it's difficult to see what's going on. So we put it in the trailing 12 month format. And then we also had it in a four 12 month format showing the next 12 months, the next 12 months, the, ne- the next 12 months. And at first the group, they just, they couldn't get their mind around it. And they, they really struggled with this. And they kept, uh, they, I'd, I'd have to remind them what the, the bars represented. And, and we talked through it and uh, there's confusion. And they, they said, ah, oh, we, we hate this process. And they, some of them were very resistant. But as you saw those, or as we saw those lines go from declining to increasing, that's when the team was like, yeah, okay, next month, let's push it up. Let's get it to 25 million next month and so on and so forth. And they kept pushing that bar line up. And that was like the pivotal moment where all that frustration in the past or just experiencing change or going through the, that frustration finally started paying off. And I, I think of it with running. You, you mentioned that I've ran five marathons. I remember when I first started running, Bill, it was miserable <laughs> to run. I mean, just just to get to two miles was, was absolutely miserable. My chest hurt, my legs hurt. It was just, it was not a good experience. But then after I started building that base, that foundation and getting into that pattern, I really started enjoying it. So even this morning I, I ran six miles is no big deal. And I, I don't say that to come across as bragging or anything. It's just once I established that pattern and built that base, now it's easy to repeat the pattern and scale up and down from there. Steve, I'm going to bring it back just for a moment. And I think that's a great point about how it relates to developing that as a capability, not just as something that you're working on developing, because there's a lot of pain in developing new athletic skills as well as new business skills. 
But once you do it, it's a real pleasure. What were the axes that you were looking at with the trailing 12 months and the forward-looking 12 months? What were the axes on the graphs? We were, um, we were looking at things such as revenue. We were looking at um, operating cash flow. And um, we had a, a client experience metric, internal client experience metric that we were measuring based on feedback from the customers and in their overall experience with the business. So those were just a few. You know, with organizations, when I'm working with them, I, I always remind them to not let the metrics dictate the strategy, but they're really there to measure the strategy. But you can create a lot of bad behavior and have unintended consequences by getting too metric crazy because then people start creating strategies to drive the metric rather than putting strategies in place to drive the customer experience. But those are just a, a few. And I think companies should just have a handful of some financial, some quantitative type metrics, but also some qualitative type metrics, like I mentioned with the, the client experience indicator. How can you put that on a chart, client experience indicator? Is that from the client's perspective with doing some sort of polling? Or is it from customer service group or the sales group reporting in? What are some of the ways to measure it so that we get the benefit of your insight into that? It's polling. So you have one part of the graph. So you can have a a bar graph, if you envision with me, a bar graph representing the median score for the month. And I, I like median better than mean. If you remember, median is lining up all the numbers and taking the middle versus the mean is just taking the average. Uh, if you take the average each month of the scores and you have um, a, a couple customers that, that rank a zero out of 10, that can really skew the average. So I, I recommend the, the median, but we would, we would graph the median score each month as the, the bar chart line. But then we'd also have on the dual axis, you know, a dotted line um, that represented the internal score of how the teams thought the experience was going. So then you could really see and, and line up uh, perceptions, internal and external perceptions of the company. And that was, that was pretty valuable. That's incredibly valuable because people now see whether what they expect is making a difference is actually valued in the eyes of their customers, right? Exactly. <laughs> what an idea. <laughs> yeah, pretty powerful to, to see it visually on a chart. So a lot of times, especially these days, when we have a lot of people who are taking uh, positions of responsibility who haven't had the benefit of a lot of mentoring, they often are recreating the wheel or inventing something new. What are some of the common mistakes that you see people who are stepping into new positions of leadership in small business or mid-sized businesses? What are some of the ways that they need to educate themselves about assessing and formulating strategy to save themselves time and produce more value for their companies faster. Great. Yeah, great. So I, I think the first thing is, the first mistake that is common is uh, making things too complicated. So in my life, in my company, uh, in the organizations that I've consulted, my biggest mantra is simplification. Sometimes people think that in order to have a robust strategy, it has to be complicated. And they'll have spreadsheets and they'll have tracking mechanisms and documents and binders and all these different things to track their strategy or to design their strategy. And it just becomes way too cumbersome and difficult to scale. So I think the first thing is just making it simple. I think Leonardo da Vinci said, he said a quote uh, that referred to something like simplification is the ultimate sophistication. And I think that is so true in business that simplifying something is actually more difficult than complexity. Complexity is very, very easy to do. So I think that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, is not getting the feedback and, and buy-in from other individuals. 
because uh, if you're in a new role, we often think that we have to come up with new ideas ourselves to justify and substantiate our, our new position. However, that's not true. I think we can glean a lot of knowledge from interacting with other people and understanding what has worked in the past and what, what hasn't worked in the past and, and really using that, that tribal knowledge that exists within the company. So getting out there, talking with other people is very key for new leaders because they're going to create buy-in because when people feel like they have a voice, then all of a sudden they're going to be more engaged in the strategic process. And if you don't have that engagement and that buy-in throughout the organization, it'll be very, very difficult. I don't care how good the, the strategic plan is. It'll be very difficult to execute and implement. Steve, do you have an example of working with a client where they embrace those with some of their new managers or new leaders and an example of the difference it makes when people are not making things overly complicated and they're actually getting buy-in and overcoming that sense of isolation or need to have all the answers. Yeah, I, I think there's a, an individual that I was working with. His name was uh, Gary and he was in Colorado and and he was leading a firm. He was the CEO of a firm and it, there's they were about... 350 employees. He was really good at building these individuals and mentoring them. And what I really like about his approach was he would almost force people to step up, almost step out. And he would give responsibility to people that may not have been qualified at the time to handle that responsibility. And as he did that, and he put that trust in them and he, and he was there as a backstop to ensure they didn't fail. But he also um, did let them have minor failures in their business, in their uh, duties. So he was able to keep on this responsibility, allow them to rise to the, the occasion. And that really developed a very strong team of these entrepreneurs, of these individuals that were creating value and, and coming up with new processes and ideas within the business. And it reminds me of a book that I've read uh, by one of my favorite professors that I met up at Tuck, or his name is Sidney Finkelstein, and he wrote a book called Super Bosses. And in this book, he talks about that very thing about how Michael Lauren Saturday Night Live, or Lauren Michaels of Saturday Night Live, how he created this dream team of talent. You had Tina Fey, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, Will Ferrell, and all these all these strong uh, characters that went off and did a ton of um, great things out there in business. And I think his approach and what Sidney talks about in his book is, is very similar to uh, what Gary was doing is, is this empowerment and allowing people to, to fail in small ways, but also to give them responsibility and allow them to step up to the occasion. What other leaders do conversely is they, they'll, they'll feel like employees aren't necessarily prepared or qualified at the time to handle certain things. So they'll, They'll say, look, when you reach this level or when you have this many number of years of experience, then you get to this level and you'll, you'll start getting these duties and responsibilities. I, I don't think that's the way to develop talent necessarily because in our fast-paced world and in this next digital generation that's coming through the workforce, uh, they're ready to take on responsibilities. And as we do so and empower them with that, they, they will thrive. I think that's a really good contrast. I think that what you're saying is that, yes, it has worked that way up till now. And that we're recognizing that there are better ways of operating, better ways of operating than saying, wait until you have four years experience managing this size group before you get an additional group to manage, but actually challenge them with smaller projects, as you say, that allow them to make mistakes so they can have the opportunity to learn from those mistakes, but not fail where it's catastrophic to the business or their career. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
Hey, Steve, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? I'm ready. All right. So as you think about getting ready for a great day of productivity, what are a couple things that you do on a regular basis that help you, that are part of your normal morning routine for a highly productive and successful day? A great question. I, I get up early, so I like getting up really early in the morning. I mean, my ideal life is uh, is waking up at four or five in the morning, but I, I get up in the morning and I run three times a week. And the other two days I'll lift weights or do some other type of physical activity. So it's exercising is a, a great way for me to clear my mind and to start my day fresh. Are there things that you do either with meditation or thinking about just regular questions that you ask yourself each day to help get your mindset ready for success? Yeah, every morning I'll read whether it's scriptures or whether it's uh, an other inspirational text, but I, I like reading inspirational, positive messages first thing in the morning because that really anchors my day and, and sets me off in the right direction. So in the last year or so, what's one of the most important habits, routines, or beliefs that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I, I think it's, it's trying to take on too much. I, I read a great book by Greg McCallan called Essentialism, and it, it talks about cutting out the unnecessary things in our lives so we can focus on the very best things. And that's very difficult for me and other entrepreneurs and type A personalities is cutting out stuff. I like to take on more and more, but as I've stop doing things, whether it's unnecessary meetings or attending certain networking events or, or just saying yes to every invitation that came my way as I was more intentional with my schedule, that's really made a big impact. You know, Greg McCown came on my quest for the best and gave a great interview and talked about that whole philosophy of essentialism. And it really has made a huge difference for a lot of people. So I'm glad that you were exposed and had a chance to work with him as well. Absolutely. Had gifts from his book. Yep. So what's the biggest misconception that people have about growth and strategy? I think uh, the biggest misconception is that people think growth, top line revenue growth is the answer to everything. I, I heard a great quote once is be patient on revenue growth, be impatient on profit growth. And I think with um, companies in some situations, scaling up revenue is, is great and you can scale up revenue very fast. But for most businesses, there has to be some type of profitability or cash flow side of the, the growth to make the business sustainable because capital isn't infinite for all businesses. I think that's really key. Just wanted to expand on something for a minute. You have a lot of wisdom in outsizing where you talk about identifying advantages and converting the advantages you identify into value. Can you share a couple insights and maybe a story about how you have applied that or clients of yours have applied that technique? Yeah, I think that's great because when, when most companies, they get together and they do those strategic plans, they identify some type of strength or what I call advantage in the business. An advantage is really defined as something that allows the company to earn above industry average profits. And advantages are, are great to have, but ultimately, if they don't tie into the client experience, if they don't allow the client experience to be better through these advantages, it's for not, right? It's, and it's not sustainable over time because you can't just focus on profit and forget about everything else. So there's a, an organization that I was working with and we were putting together a strategic plan and they were looking at their advantages. And I would ask them, do the customers care about this? So they, they would throw out an advantage and say, hey, we're really good at this. And we think this is very unique to our firm. And I'd say, well, does the customer care about it? Well, no, not really. 
And then I'd say, okay, put that to the side. And what, what we did is we narrowed down like five or six advantages that they identified and we narrowed it down to two things. And really it came down to, um, one of them was speed and the rate of their execution. They were one of the, the fastest um, installers in the whole entire area. They could uh, put more work in place than any other uh, business in the, in the industry. So that was a huge thing and customers loved it. And then the, the other advantage was their tech side. They were so digitally advanced that it allowed them to build upon that, that throughput in the, the fast installation advantage. And, and it also allowed the, the customer to have a very seamless experience with them. So these two advantages, long story short, were, were boiled down from five or six that the company had down to these two. The company is able to invest more time, more resources, more financial capital into these. And in turn, when they focus on these, they saw converting, they saw them convert into to more value, which allowed them to charge a price premium and earn more profits for the business. So ultimately what I'm saying here is it's great to have advantages and every business should be working on developing advantages, but they have to be advantages clients care about, number one. And then number two is once you have those advantages, you have to be able to capture value off them. So you have to be able to charge more, do it for less, or scale your business in a, a manner which will allow you to earn above industry average profits. So that's very, very important to understand. That's a terrific insight. And again, it brings back the financial underpinning to make sure that your company is going to have a lot of cash flow and profit to be sustained in the long run. Do you have people go out and validate what they think is valuable to the client? So in other words, they say, well, yeah, they do care about that. And then do you say, well, you think they do. Let's check. Let's do a quick poll. Let's do some phone surveys. Do you do something like that to make sure that it's really grounded from the customer's experience rather than just a consensus of the executives? Yes, absolutely. Because otherwise you get stuck in just creating internal strategies that aren't really tested out in the world. So you're absolutely right, Bill. And I, I think that the, the question you could ask your customers, which is scary, it takes a lot of guts, is what do you hate about doing business with us? And this follow-up question is what do you hate about doing business in our industry? And if you're bold enough to ask that question, uh, you'll find a lot of insights. And really your advantages should be things that mitigate the things that they hate. So if they say, ah, you know, what I hate about doing business with you is it's just so arduous. The onboarding process is just, there's so many forms and it's, I got to talk to five different people and I just hate that part. Once I'm past that, I I love working with your company. Uh, If you get that type of feedback, then you know you can start building advantages around that onboarding process. So having the guts and the courage to ask those tough questions is very important because your customers are going to be talking about it anyways. Might as well ask them and, and validate the advantages that you were talking about, Bill. Interesting. Steve, before we get too far away, could you just share a sentence about that company's, what they install so we have a little bit more context? Yeah. So they, they installed um, a landscape contractor. So they would ins- install pools and spas and outdoor kitchens and, and lighting and all the, the fancy custom features of an outdoor space. Fabulous. Thank you. So Steve, let me just say that what you've shared with me today has been incredibly valuable and everyone listening is going to get a lot of questions to think about (laughs) and talk about with their teams in order to reevaluate this. I hope that people pick up outsizing strategies to grow your business profits and potential because it offers so many more details than we were able to cover in this interview today. But I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Steve Cochran, author of Outsizing, Strategies to Grow Your Business Profits and Potential. You've shared so much. 
Thank you again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate you having me. You know, before we say goodbye, tell us where we can find out more about you and your work online. Sure. So you can find me. I have a, a personal website, stevecoffran.com. Last name is spelled C-O-U-G-H-R-A-N. Coffran, so stevecoffran.com or cultivar.com. Those are uh, two places you can find me. And I'm very active on LinkedIn, especially, and on uh, Twitter. So you can find me in those social outlets as well. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. So it makes it easy for people to find you for sharing your thoughts on my quest for the best. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.